quarterback readers. I'm Joe, that's Julie, and uh, to give you way more technical information than you ever want, if we sound a little different, we're uh, recording on a different computer, we've got a different setup, it's a little more comfortable for us, and hopefully <laughs> it doesn't sound appreciably worse. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, how many books did you read these last two weeks? I read, I feel like the answer to that is five, but in true me fashion, I have to sit here and, and like use my fingers and count. Uh, yeah, the answer is five. You have started your typical yearly complaining that I'm reading so much more than you, but we read the <laughs> same amount of books. Well, I am still working on that gigantic Civil War book that I've listened to on audio for like 28 hours, and I'm still like <laughs> 60% finished with volume one of the three-volume set. But wow. anyway, that aside. I get to go first, yes? Sure. Okay. So over the past two weeks, the first thing that I read was Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zauner, which is a reread, actually. Mm -hmm. I read that one last summer. And I thought that it was a pretty decent book. I read it again this time because I had a book club meeting today that was reading this book. So I reread it and I loved it the second time through. Just really, really, there's, I don't know, maybe some other layers of meaning. Maybe an extra year of maturity. I don't know what it is. But um, her descriptions of food were beautiful. And um, I really, I felt like the relationships in my mind anyway, they fit together better to me than they had the first time. I think it was the kimchi. but <laughs> Possible. I did also um, buy some Korean foods to eat for this book club today. So <laughs> you have been fascinated by all that. Yeah. Um, but that is an excellent book. Um, a really beautiful memoir of a daughter's love for her mother and the mother's love for her daughter. And the uh, spine of the book is food. So really beautiful. Um, then I read Jesus Without Borders by Chad Gibbs, which is also a reread. Um, gosh, we read this years and years ago. We bought it and I read it out loud to you probably while we were driving places. Mm -hmm. um, and the kids were just so tiny. Yeah. Um, but I read it again recently with our daughter, Natalie. And this book is um, a faith memoir through travel. Chad Gibbs, who's a friend of yours. Yeah. Um, he wrote this book as an examination of how Christians worship all over the world. So he went to England. He went to China. He went to Brazil. He went to Israel. And in every place that he went, and he went a lot more places than just that, in every place that he went, he tried to go to a worship service of some kind so that he could see and, and talk to local Christians and find out what it was like being a Christian in this space. Obvious limitations to what you can find in the short time that he's there. He admits these limitations from the start. But still, it was um, a really beautiful examination of Christianity and the unity among believers all over the world. Chad Gibbs is a Protestant from Alabama. Um, so he brings that lens to his examination but by the end of this book, actually, right from the beginning, from, from meeting other people, he was focusing so much on the similarities among all of us who worship Christ rather than the differences, which seems to be what we focus on, you know, denominationally and, mm -hmm. and all kinds of ways. Um, it was also just very typical Chad Gibbs style, absolutely hilarious. Um, he wrote another book that we read first, 
that was about SEC football. It's gotten right? football, isn't it? I yeah. think that's the title. Um, I was sitting here thinking that yeah. might be a good one to read with uh, with Ryan next because yeah. I think he would appreciate that aspect. They just—they're hilarious because he's so funny. He's actually branched out and started writing fiction now as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. Um, excellent writer to check out, and we really loved this book. All right, the next book is True Biz by Sarah Novick. Um, this one is the only, no, it's not the only novel I read over these two weeks, but I did read a lot of nonfiction. Um, this novel is a look into deaf culture as the three main characters are all involved with the River Valley School for the Deaf. So, um, February is the headmistress. She is hearing, but both of her parents were deaf, which is how she got involved in deaf culture. And then it follows Austin, who is a student at the school. And then he's been a student at the school his whole life as he was born deaf to deaf parents um, and was versed in ASL, American Sign Language, from, Mm -hmm. you know, birth, really. And then the third student in this is a student who had a cochlear implant, um, never learned ASL, and has only come to River Valley as a high school student. I thought the look at deaf culture was fascinating. My favorite line from the book, I wrote a blog post about this actually, my favorite line from the book was early on where February the headmistress is just fuming after she has met with the parents of this girl and she says to her partner, it is just, it's just crazy to me how the best thing that some parents can think of to dream for their kids is to look normal. And that stuck with me so hard through the rest of the book. And honestly, in all the days that have come since then, um, the idea that that we feel sad for people who don't fit our definition of normal. Um, in reality, we, we probably need to just open our minds a little bit mm-hmm. and see what is their version of normal and how we can join in with that as well. Yeah, the, the focus being in the wrong place, sure. Yeah. So I, I really liked this book. I was a little frustrated by the ending of it, but the book as a whole was very enjoyable to read. Then I read a book that I've been waiting for for what feels like forever. <laughs> um, ever since she wrote Present Over Perfect, I've been looking for her next book, and this one has been delayed. Shauna Nequist's new book, I guess I haven't learned that yet, has finally come out, and it is absolutely wonderful. Shauna Nequist writes essays, um, they're personal essays, of course, but they relate very neatly, very clearly to the human condition. I love, she started writing these essays when, when she was very young, and she's a contemporary of ours. She's close to our age anyway. I think she's just a little bit older. Um, so when I started reading her, the things that she was writing about were fitting along with exactly what I was dealing with. And as I have continued to read her books, I feel like that, that age thing has been very, very good for my understanding where she's coming from and for her hitting the same kinds of things that um, concern me, that scare me, and that I'm trying to figure out about my life right now. That said, you do not need to be the same age as she is to be able to appreciate these books. Um, They're really quite universal in the way that she looks at um, what kind of life do you want to live and how can you best live it. I guess I haven't learned that yet. Her focus for it was more of what do you do when the life that you imagined for yourself falls all to pieces? How do you pick up the pieces 
how do you go back and find joy and gratitude and continue to piece together a good life when it looks nothing like what you imagined. Um, beautiful, beautiful book. I've only read it once. <laughs> I feel like that will change. It will very soon. Um, well, you read this a lot like I did the Baseball 100 and that you, it was a writer you loved and a book that you knew you were going to love. And so you wanted to read it, but you also didn't want to read it because you didn't want to finish it. Yes. And I, I could identify with that. There were 50 short essays in this book. So I would just like gulp down a couple of them and then I'd be like, no, 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 <laughs> let's put it down. Let's read whatever no, fiction seriously. I've got right now. You could now. be talking about the Baseball 100 yeah. and me. So I, I'm with you. Last book for me for these two weeks is called The No Show by Beth O'Leary. I have loved Beth O'Leary ever since she wrote The Flat Share several years ago. Um, she's a romance writer. Um, but these were, the characters in these books are really just very powerful. She's one of my favorites. The No Show is not my favorite of her books. Um, just because, okay, here's the premise. Um, a Valentine's date, three different women, three separate times on Valentine's Day. And they're all stood up, but it is by the same man. And so for most of this book, I was really, really, like, the, she did a good job making the man very likable, but I didn't want to like him because I knew he was a cheater. And so I was very conflicted with that for the whole book and was frustrated that she was trying to make us like him because he is a cheater. Then in the last few chapters, everything falls together. I could see where she was going with it. It was a very, very clever concept for the book. Um, very much worth reading. I'm very glad I read it. But it was still a little bit of a letdown for me because of how much I had disliked him mm -hmm. for the whole book. Okay, that's what I've got. What about you? It was a good bunch. Um, mine were a little bit all over the place. Um, on the other side of a great writer who had a book you knew you were going to love, I've long enjoyed the books of Rob Nyer, great baseball writer, and I was in a used bookstore, and I stumbled onto a book of his I had never heard of, and it was called Feeding the Green Monster. And sadly, much as I love Rob, and I'm going to throw in an immediate pitch for his last book, Powerball, I think he's got a new one coming out with an umpire, if my memory serves. I'll have to check it out, because I read everything of his, which is why I got this. And I got it for 75 cents. <laughs> and for me, it was worth that 75 cents. But I think... Many, many writers have this idea that if they spend a season around a baseball team, something astonishing will happen and they will give us this great baseball book. And I think Rob kind of fell victim to that. And the 2000 Boston Red Sox were as unexceptional as most of the teams that most of the writers have uh, fallen into this particular trap on. I, I liked it because it was Rob. It would be the last book of his I would recommend to a new reader. Uh, again, Powerball, the 2018 one is outstanding go there or uh, any of his books about baseball legends or uh, you know he's such a fun writer that uh, I can forgive him what I would have to regard as a misstep bless him um but I know you have really loved all of his books oh yeah yeah the presidential uh saga continues quest continues with Franklin Pierce by Michael F Holt and I'm going to read it in the voice of that great character from the Simpsons <laughs> who would say it worst president Ever by Robert Strauss, which is about James Buchanan. So, check those two off the list. Uh, the, the Holt <laughs> book is from that American Presidency series, which, thank God, those people wrote those books, because in the case of so many boring dead people, 
it reduces a life to 130 or 140 pages, and I can say, got that one off my list. Uh, and that was the case with Pierce, who was not a great president. This is why I don't do book challenges, because I don't want to read a book just to check it off my list. Well, you know, it's all for completion's sake. <laughs> uh, Pierce, the, probably the best thing I can say about Pierce is the theory is maybe he would have done better. He and his wife had three children. They had lost two already by the time he ran for president. He runs for president against his wife's wishes, which all of those guys do, by the way. There was some kind of thing in the world that in 1850 or 40 or 60, if you were going to do something, you had to be like, I don't want to do this, but if everybody were to insist that I did this, I suppose I could do it while you're sitting there like writing your acceptance speech. Uh, so... But their wives didn't want to Oh, their, their wives always were like, don't do this, no. And they're like, I really don't want to, honey. I think you're right, but... And Pierce is one of these. He gets elected, and shortly before he's inaugurated, they take a short train trip, and on the way back, the train derails, and their third child is killed in front of their eyes. Oh, yes. Oh. Mrs. Pierce was never the same, and a lot of people think Franklin Pierce was never the same. He certainly developed a fondness for the bottle, which was exacerbated later in his life when she died. Mm. Um, tough, tough times Tragic. for a guy. Pierce and Buchanan were both... Awful presidents, uh, largely because, much like Millard Fillmore, they seem to be living a choose-your-own-adventure book where they always pick the wrong one. Uh, whatever choice they had, both Pierce and Buchanan had a remarkable ability to draw the worst course of action and to doggedly stick to it no matter what. And this really, in the case of both of them, particularly Buchanan, probably plunged the country into the Civil War. Uh, one of the things I will say for Strauss's book, which is, as Worst President Ever would suggest as a title, a little more pop culture-y, um, he actually spends some time talking about this whole presidential rating thing, and his ultimate verdict is, put Buchanan at the bottom with a group of three. Now, granted, this book is a few years old, so no recent company here, but uh, Pierce... Warren G. Harding and Buchanan were his bottom three, and he ultimately says, but Buchanan's the worst. And it's, but it's, it makes you feel a little bit of sympathy for him. You can understand why he might have been the worst. So. Well, that was Pierce who oh, lost sorry. the child. Buchanan had no children. Buchanan is the only bachelor president, although a child couldn't have made his life any worse because he is pretty <laughs> much a... Buchanan, I will say this for Buchanan, he's the opposite of what I just talked about. Pierce and Taylor were two of these, like, I guess, if they want me to. Buchanan was not that guy. Buchanan's the guy who's like, me, sir, me, me, I, let me be president. I, I can do it, please, I, I'm well qualified. And eventually they were like, okay, James, it's your turn. And he pretty much gets the country plunged into the Civil War. Uh, in, in both men's cases, they were what would be called northern doe faces. They were northerners who spent most of their presidency bending over backward to try to accommodate the South on slavery, and that didn't work out real well. Uh, so, anyway, they're off the list. This uh, fellow from Hodgenville, Kentucky, who was the 16th president, Which book uh, are you going to choose about Lincoln? I'm leaning team of rivals, but I have so many Great Lincoln books. I may pull out one of those for a reread. It's it's a good conundrum to have. You have an, you've earned an enjoyable one. I, I have. I think so. Uh, with Ryan, I read The Blind Side by Michael Lewis. 
Uh, I've talked about Michael Lewis before. This was his book about a high school football recruit from the ghetto of Memphis who gets de facto adopted by a wealthy white family and that forces him into this kind of odd dual life that culminates in him being an NFL player. I mean, we don't really get that far in the book, but that's what happened to Michael Orr in real life. Um, a really interesting book for a guy like Lewis, who's kind of a data guy, who's kind of a, you know, give me the nerdy big picture guy, because it's a little more touchy-feely than that. And, and a lot of it ends up being a book about what is our responsibility to those who are left behind? And not so much our responsibility as what is our ability to help, to change? How how can you take a life that looks, from all appearances, like it's headed down one path, which is what was happening for Michael Orr, and put it down a different path? And that's probably the most profound thing I could take out of it. Um, a very enjoyable book. It's a, a good movie, not a great movie, a good movie. Uh, with Sandra Bullock, if you want the Cliff Notes version, uh, you can check that out. But I love Michael Lewis as a writer. And oh, you do? You read all of his stuff? No exception. And and our son enjoyed it and learned about pass rushers, and we watched Lawrence Taylor break Joe Theismann's leg and all those fun things that you get to do. Oh. Yeah. And then I read one called When the Braves Ruled the Diamond by Dan Schlossberg. This is one of my iPad reads before I go to sleep. I read the, the history of the Braves winning 14 division titles in a row, 1991 to 2004 or 5. I'm not sure if my math fails me at the end. It sounds like a nice thing to put you to sleep. <laughs> it, was, it was fun. He, uh, he kind of hit the high points and then went year by year. And I was amazed as a guy who started out, you know, when that run started, I was a big baseball guy and really kept up. And by the end of it, I almost... Didn't watch games, but it's still kind of cool to go year by year and go, how did the, these guys succeed, you know, to do this 14 years in a row? Obviously, there was tremendous turnover. You don't do that with the same personnel. So a fun read, nothing uh, nothing particularly heavyweight, but if you remember or enjoyed those Braves teams of the 1990s, early 2000s, Dan Schlossberg's book is a good way to catch up with them. So that was it for me, and... We did have our shared book, which I read so long ago, I've, I've struggled to remember it, but that's par for the course for me. So I'm kind of excited to talk about this one. It is The 90s by Chuck Klosterman. It has a great cover, Wait, by the way. don't you say his name differently than that? Klosterman. Okay. Yes. Okay, by Chuck Klosterman. And yes, I got this book for you as a gift after the gift that I intended to get you fell through. They didn't have it at Barnes & Noble. Hmm. And I remember that this book had come out, and so I had both kids with me, and I sent them, like, we, we were dividing and conquering to mm -hmm. find this book. So we're going through the new nonfiction, and I told them to look for the book with the weird phone on the front, not realizing <laughs> that they would not recognize this 90s relic. It has which, a cord, I mean. Yeah, and you could, it's one of those clear ones where you can see all the insides oh, yeah. that every girl in the 90s wanted to have, but they, they did not recognize that as a phone. <laughs> So. Which is really a great commentary right there on, <laughs> on our bygone era of youth, yes. Okay, so what Chuck Klosterman was writing... Okay, pause. You've read several of his book, which, books. We've mentioned these before. Mm -hmm. um, you, one of them is like Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. It is. Um, what else have you read by him? I read Fargo Rock City. I read Killing Yourself to Live. 
Uh, I read a book called But What If We're Wrong, which is one of his more theoretical ones. I remember that one really well. Uh, I Wear the Black Hat was interesting. The subtitle on it is Grappling with Villains Real and Imagined. So the point here is that you, he's written some fiction too. Mm -hmm. You are a fan of his. You've read several things of his. I have never read more than an essay or two. So this is my first full Close to Round book to read. And I thought it was fantastic. I agreed to try reading this one because it is written about the 90s, which is um, obviously not the only decade that you and I have lived in, but the most formative one, maybe? Yeah, I'll buy that. It's, it's the one from our childhood, like when we were still kids, but we were old enough to remember more things about it. Okay. Yeah, I'll buy that. So what he does in this book with the 90s is he puts it in historical, societal, and cultural context based on what came before and what came after to sort of make sense of the 90s and um, give it some, like give these things that we lived through and experienced some kind of cultural significance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, they they were so... Wide-ranging. I mean, I'm looking at one of the blurbs on the back that says, who else could pull Quentin Tarantino, college football, and Alan Greenspan, not to mention Tiger Woods, Dick Morris, and Reality Bites, into a coherent examination of a world about to undergo a paradigm shift? And, yeah, that's a pretty good thumbnail of, of who he is as a writer. When I decided to read it, I expected to read the first essay and have one or two things. Either just kind of... Boy talk goofiness based on the <laughs> He's title. He's not above that. Yeah. yeah, based on, you know, the title Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, you know, um, from an, another book of his. Mm. Or something that was kind of maybe too highbrow that for me to want to read a whole book. And he's not above that. Sure. Um, but let me tell you, I read the introduction, and then before I knew what I was doing, I was reading the first chapter. And he, his structure is he has a chapter about a big topic, and then he kind of has a sub-chapter that comes after it mm-hmm. that deals with similar things to what he's talking about here, but maybe wouldn't stand on a whole chapter by itself. Um, and I just flew through this book. I couldn't put it down. I really like to read um, a novel and a nonfiction book at the same time, but my novel got abandoned because I really <laughs> just... This was fascinating to me, and here's why. Um, I remembered... I was I'm not the most pop culture savvy person well, we, in the world by We were from shots. rural Kentucky, so yeah. the nineties probably started in about nineteen ninety six for <laughs> us. But yeah. But I never I never did pay much attention to these things. I like what I knew about pop culture came from my sister who dragged me along through whatever um, trails, pop culture trails she was going down and I enjoyed it. But it was I would not have sought it out on my own. Right. Um, so I figured that there would be, he would be writing about a lot of stuff that I didn't know anything about, but every chapter in this book dealt with something that I had some knowledge of, some more than others, but I had some knowledge of every main topic he wanted to talk about. And the magic of this book was that he managed to fill in all of the gaps that I either didn't care about at the time or was too young to fully understand, or just didn't have the intellectual capacity to put all the pieces together. So he kind of made that all fit for me, and then made it make sense for the things that have come after. Oh, this is why we do things this way now, 
because I could see that these things that were so formative, um, how they fed into that stuff. So like I say, I, I couldn't stop reading it. He talked about Kurt Cobain. He talked about O.J. Simpson. He talked about um, television in the 90s. He talked about Garth Brooks and country music, <laughs> which I love me some 90s country music. <laughs> um, he really pulled in all these disparate pieces of um, 90s life, 90s society, 90s culture, made them make sense. It wasn't really a nostalgic kind of thing. No, at, at times I would feel that, but, but mostly... For one of his books, which can dive off everywhere, and this one is not shy about right. doing that, but it felt closer to a history book. It really did a phenomenal job of putting these things in some kind of framework, which having lived through them, that's the mystery. It's make these make some sort of sense. It's not that I, I you know, lack any context about what it was. I lack context about what on earth did it mean, if it meant anything. I really liked the way that he kind of went back a couple of decades first, too. And we're like, you know, here was the big change in the 60s. Here was the big change in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Here was the... And, and he looked at that with the 90s as well, which the internet, um, and how it changed life forever, and how we were not totally prepared for it. We're, I don't really feel like you can have spoilers in a book like this. No. Okay. I mean, because we've already lived all of this stuff. <laughs> um, but I will say, for instance, um, the O.J. Simpson mm-hmm. he, case, he talked about the um, white Ford Bronco, that we, 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 and we all watched it. Yeah. Um, honestly, I didn't under I, again, sheltered um, rural Kentucky here. I didn't totally understand everything that was going on. I knew he was being accused of murder. I knew he was fleeing. I knew that we were watching it. Um, in this book, when they talked about the people who were on the si- on the side of the road holding signs, cheering him on, I have no memory of that um, at the time. And it was so interesting to me because knowing what I do now about everything that came after it, that seemed to be like, the harbingers of the people who want to get on social media and like, and, and shout things. Um, people who want to weigh in with an opinion on every single thing. Um, at the time, I don't remember that being like a huge part of what was discussed about the chase. Oh, sure. No. Um, Very much under the radar. Yeah, but it was so interesting to me to have that piece. And like, you remember those signs. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah. I... To have that piece brought out now in the context of how our lives have changed, you know, we didn't have the internet in that in at that time period where people could get on and weigh in with their opinions about O.J. Simpson, and still we had people on the side of the road holding up signs to tell their opinions. Oh yeah, well, and I just I found all this to be just really interesting. And, and then, you know, this might be a spoiler, so plug your ears for thirty seconds if you're going to read this book and don't want to have something tipped off, although you could probably figure this out. His last chapter was the one that hit me the hardest because he says the 2000 presidential election and then 9-11 are the two things that culturally end the 90s. And one of the things he he talked about in the 2000 election that blew my mind was how a decent chunk of the voting populace from both parties basically said, it doesn't really matter who wins. Can you imagine that? I mean, this was the United States of America 
circuit AD 2000 and to have like 41% of the people from one party and 38% of the people from the other be like, you know, if their candidate wins, it's really not a big deal. I'll get up the next day and go to work and pay my taxes and but life will be fine. Is, I 100% remember that. That was our that was our first election yeah. to vote in. Yeah, it was. And I, I truly remember that and watching the debates and feeling that very strongly that I had my candidate, but either way, it was going to be okay. And I think that that kind of political feeling ending out the 90s is part of why the political division and strife has hit so hard yeah. for yeah. our generation and why it is it is both so infuriating and so baffling. Yeah. Because it's like that's not been that long ago. And yeah, I, I remember when all this went down, I had my thoughts on how this was being handled and what should or shouldn't have happened. But it was kind of like, well, you know, either way, we'll, we'll get on. It, it, they'll do this or they won't do this. And you see pieces of it still that there are large segments of our society who still want to hang on to that and say, what does it really matter? I don't need to vote or, you know, I'm just going to vote my party because none of this really matters. They're hanging on to that even though now today that is no longer the case. Yeah, that, that world is gone. Uh, for better or worse. But again, he talked about so many and so many things that were not as serious as this. My probably my favorite <laughs> thing that he talked about was television. Yeah. Because he pointed out how nineties television all followed the same pattern. And of course it did. And he talked about how that we liked that because it brought us comfort. And mm -hmm. I remember like shutting that chapter and saying to you, That's why that's why I don't like television anymore. Because I watched television totally for an escape. If I wanted to be challenged by something, I read a book. Yeah. Um, and I still am that way. I, I look for my challenges in the pages. I go to I turn on the TV when I really just want to relax and not have to worry about what's going to happen. This is why I don't watch The Sopranos. Right. This is why there, there's so many of these shows that you love that you want me to watch. I'm still stuck in the mindset of 90s television. <laughs> That's all I need from my television. Which really wasn't that different from 50s television. I, I mean, the, the <laughs> people got a little more attractive and we could tell a few more jokes about sex. But other than that... You know, yeah, that, that's completely true. What What was your favorite chapter, if not the last one? <sighs> the stuff on Cobain is interesting to me, just because. Yes. I, well, we just read. I didn't live storytellers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It it just it wasn't my life. I mean, I in Eastern Kentucky, I was tangentially aware of Nirvana. I didn't own a Nirvana CD until after Kurt Cobain died. Uh, and and to this day, they're not somebody who pops up on my playlist a great deal. I, I I always had some respect for their stuff, but it just wasn't my thing. It really still isn't my thing. Well, the culture that Nirvana created was what he really focused on. Yeah, which which I was more aware of. Uh, but but this this whole selling out, you know. I read that and I'm like, man, what happened to, to the obsession about selling out? Oh my gosh, so and so really selling out. Like in 2022, everybody sold out. If you haven't sold out, it's because you're just fixing your price to sell out. Uh, you know, Nirvana. This is so quaint. But uh, but they they also were sellouts in some way. Oh sure, which is what he points sure. out here. Um, he talks about where. 
Cobain's wife, I talked to you about this, mm-hmm. Courtney Love bought some big fancy car that he made her take it back because he didn't want the appearance of being a sellout, even though they could afford all of this stuff and they were undoubtedly blowing all kinds of money on other sellout things, but he didn't want it to look like he was. It, it was okay to spend like a million dollars on heroin, but it wasn't okay to spend... Thirty thousand bucks on a, a BMW. Yeah, I mean, it was so odd in so way, so the many whole ways. Kurt Cobain story breaks your heart. Everything you know about yeah. it, and he does nothing in this book. There's nothing he can do to keep it from breaking your heart. But that that's really where he opens it, is talking about that's the first real chapter. Cobain and the impact and the way that shaped the start of the '90s. Y'all, if you are a child of the 90s as we are. You just really need to read this book and then you need to email us and and let us know what you thought about it because we could talk about this all day we long. We already have. But... And if you um, are not a child of the 90s and you're thinking, well, then this one may not be for me, it may not. But because of the cultural contextualization that he does, I would say particularly if you are somebody who is younger like who came up in the 2000s this is still a worthwhile thing because this book shows how forces before you were really conscious of it were shaping the world that you are living in now Mm -hmm. and it is fascinating it is it is that well next time we have got a very different kind of book that we're going to dive in on but it's also nonfiction. it's a memoir it is called bomb shelter by mary laura philpott um, I read her first book, I Miss You When I Blink, when it came out, and this one is brand new. It's only been out for like, I don't know, a week or two, maybe. Yeah. It's so new. I'm about halfway done with it, and I'm really loving it. I have read you a chapter or two, and you think it sounds like it's going to be up your alley, too. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. Miss Philpott works at uh, one of my favorite... Or she did. I don't know if she still works there. Yeah, but. worked. Uh, maybe still works. I have one of my favorite bookstores, Parnassus, uh, in Nashville. It's a cool place. Uh, yeah, she's doing a signing there soon. Well, I guess we could find <laughs> out if she works there. Like, hey, when you're not signing your book here, can you tell me something else I could read? No, that's the kind of people they get there. I mean, that wouldn't be weird. It's, uh, um, it's, it's a fabulous book. It explores um, what it explores kind of the idea of. We all have an idea in our head of what our life is supposed to be, and what do we do when that starts falling apart? Is this really that different than Shauna Nyquist? Then does I was it all just come together? That when I was saying it, but no, this one is more memoir, and she's yeah. telling specific stories from her life. Um, oh, it's so good, y'all! It's so good. Well, thanks so much for journeying with us. Give them all the social de- media details, as I try not to sneeze too much. <laughs> You've done a lot of yard work this uh-huh. weekend. Um, you can find us um, at, by email at paperbackreaderspod at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram at paperbackreaderspod or on Twitter at pbackreaderspod. We would love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening. Um, stay well. Have a good spring and whatever else you do. For goodness sakes, keep reading. Keep reading.